KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. From KYW News Radio 103.9 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hi, I'm Raquel Williams, and welcome to Bridging Philly. The overturning of Roe v. Wade sparked protests across the nation and here in Philadelphia. The question now, what's next? We reached out to a Rutgers Camden law professor to get more insight. There are going to be thousands upon thousands of women giving birth to children who they don't want. This week, we have more than one newsmaker as we reached out to several doctors in response to the overturning of Roe as questions surrounding women's health and safety loom. The Supreme Court's decision has potentially impacted my ability to do my job, to help my patients and to take care of my patients. Antoinette Lee has our Philly Rising Changemaker this week. It's a half hour you don't want to miss, and it's all coming up on Bridging Philly. Welcome to Bridging Philly. The Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade has sparked protests across the nation and fears of far-reaching ripple effects. And we have lots of questions about how we got here and what is next to come. To get a better understanding on this issue, we're joined by Kimberly Mutcherson. She is Dean and Professor of Law at Rutgers Law School in Camden. Welcome, Kim. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, of course, when this first started, we all talked about this um, when the opinion was first leaked. And it looks like some of the things that you were talking about may be unfolding. And of course, we will let everyone, you know, clue everyone in on that in just a moment. But first, Kim, let's talk about this draft opinion by Justice Alito when it was first leaked uh, on the overturning of Roe. Was that an all but sure sign that this was a guarantee to happen? Yeah, certainly it was for me. I mean, honestly, the fact that the Supreme Court decided not to stop Texas's law, SB8, when that originally went into effect quite some months ago, um, was a sign to me that they were moving in that direction. So when the draft opinion came out, um, I was not one of those people who thought, oh, they'll probably soften it up um, before, before the majority opinion comes out. And really all that Justice Alito did was critique the dissent Uh, critique the concurring opinion um, by uh, Chief Justice Roberts, but the rest of it really stayed the same. Mm. I think we were all hoping that there would be some kind of softening up and that there was no way that this was actually going to happen the way it was written, but it has. For the sake of background, take us back to 1969 when unmarried, pregnant with her third child, Norma McCorvey, also known as Jane Roe, sought to have an abortion in Texas. What was going on then? Yeah. So, you know, Texas, like many states um, at the time, had a ban in place that required that you get um, proper permission, basically, (laughs) to terminate a pregnancy. And Jane Rowe, who we later came to know was was Norma uh, McCorvey, um, was a woman who wanted to terminate her pregnancy, a young woman who wanted to terminate um, her pregnancy and could not do so in Texas because their rules were so stringent. Um, the case ended up being taken on by a very young woman lawyer um, named Sarah Weddington, um, who ultimately was able to bring it up to the Supreme Court. And so that decision w- didn't come down until 1973. Um, and what people maybe don't know is that uh, she she had to have the baby, right? right. I mean, that was part of what was required to be a plaintiff um, in that case so as not to moot the case. Um, and later in life, another little bit of trivia, she became um, a, uh, a big member of the anti-choice movement. 
And she was used a lot as a person who, you know, regretted uh, her abortion, even though we know from data that most women feel relief, not regret uh, when they terminate a pregnancy. So the Supreme Court issued a decision in 1973. It was a seven to two decision. So it was not as divided as we've seen this court since then. And they basically said the right to abortion is found in the Constitution. It can be extrapolated from a number of different constitutional amendments, including the 14th Amendment. And they created this structure, the trimester framework. And they said in the first trimester, states cannot regulate abortion at all, right? It's none of their business. In the second trimester, they can regulate abortion, but only for the health of the pregnant woman. And then in the third trimester, because the state interest in potential life becomes significant at that point, that they could go so far as to ban abortion, but there always had to be an exception for the life and health of the pregnant woman. So that was Roe, and that's what we lived with for many years. And then in 1992, we got Planned Parenthood versus Casey. um, And that was the case where uh, states were basically given, I'm not going to say free reign, because the court did say we are reinforcing the essential holding of Roe versus Wade, which is that the Constitution protects a right to an abortion. But they raised a concern that they had not shown sufficient deference to the state's interest in potential life in Roe versus Wade. So they said, we're going to get rid of this whole trimester framework. We're just going to focus on viability. And that's going to be the dividing line between um, how states can regulate. So again, states can ban after viability, must have an exception for the life or health of the pregnant woman. Um, But then before viability, in Casey, the court said, because the state has this interest in potential life and an interest that kicks in from the moment of a pregnancy, that the state can- Yep. That the state can actually try to persuade women not to have abortions. So that's where we get our, you know, our waiting periods, right? You get, you have to get consented and then you have to wait 24 hours, 48 hours to come back. Um, We got our notification or consent for minors with the requirement of an ability to go to a judge if you want to circumvent um, your parents. Um, We got biased informed consent requirements. So that's why states can say things that are untrue, like abortion increases your risk of breast cancer, which simply isn't true. And so after Planned Parenthood versus Casey, states have been dismantling access to abortion for a very long time. So, you know, the thing that I think is really critical to remember in the space that we're in right now is that for thousands upon thousands of women and other pregnant folks in this country, access to abortion has been severely limited for decades. Mm -hmm. And what's happening now is that a lot of folks who sort of thought that they were uh, exempt from those sorts of uh, intrusions into their privacy are suddenly seeing that this can happen to you too. Wow. Wow. I want to talk about the climate uh, back in the in 1969 and before that. You know, I think we have to be reminded of some of the things that were happening in terms of the horrific abortions, the botched abortions, mm-hmm. women losing their lives. Talk about what was happening back then. Yeah, I mean, so, you know, what was happening back then is in some ways different from what we're going to see now. And I think it's important for us to talk about that. Um, but, you know, in the historical context, if you were a woman who had money, you disappeared for a little while, mm-hmm. right? You flew mm-hmm. to wherever it was that you needed to go. Um, you know, we certainly hear stories of young women from, you know, upper middle class families who got, you know, sent away for a little while. 
um, and then came back home. Um, and so those folks were able to access safe abortions because they had resources in order to get them. Um, for folks who didn't have those resources, sometimes they would find themselves in spaces with totally unqualified people, dangerous people, people who didn't care about their health or welfare. Um, and that's when we would see women you know, showing up at emergency rooms um, with horrific injuries from botched uh, back alley abortions. And then, of course, there are the women who tried to self-abort. Um, yeah. And would, you know, insert things into their bodies. And, and then there were the, the consequences of that were really dire um, as well. So that is, um, I hope, a world that most people don't want us um, to move back to. And I think that medication abortion puts us in a better position now than we were um, back in the 60s. But we are still in a space where there are going to be women, younger women, undocumented women, um, poor women who continue to feel like their only option is to try to manage an abortion themselves, which can be done safely in the right circumstances, but can also lead to an end of your fertility and sometimes even an end of your life. Kim, I want to talk about the moral argument here, which we really can't ignore because it is out there. And I think it's important. You mentioned this to me when the, the decision was first leaked. What is it about the language uh, of the decision that people don't understand that ultimately threatens other privacy laws? So basically what uh, Justice Alito does is he works really hard to to gaslight us. And I think that's exactly the way to describe it. Um, And he says, you know, this is only about abortion. Don't worry about anything else. It's just about abortion. And then Justice Thomas, who I very rarely give credit to at all for anything, at least had the decency to say, well, actually, the way that we are talking about rights in this opinion suggests that we should also look at some other privacy rights. So things like marriage equality, uh, Justice Thomas specifically calls out a Burgerfell, which is the marriage equality case. He specifically talks about Lawrence versus Texas, which was a case that said that states can't criminalize consensual sexual conduct between adults of the same sex. He talks about Griswold versus Connecticut, which is the case where the Supreme Court said that married people have a right to access contraception, right? Things that we think of as being really basic. But the the way that they are analyzing these issues in Justice Alito's opinion, you know, first he says the word abortion doesn't exist in the Constitution. Well, thank you, sir. There are lots of rights that we have that don't that are not specifically enumerated um, in the Constitution. So that's not the most powerful thing, I think. But the piece of it that I think makes a lot of us nervous and should make us nervous is where he says very clearly, and this is a test the court has used before, um, but the way that they're using it now, I think, is, is making people much more nervous. He says, listen, if it's a right that's not rooted in the nation's history and traditions, then we're not going to say that it's protected by the Constitution and we're going to send it to the states and the states get to decide. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure that for certain people in this country, the idea of hearkening back to what the framers wanted and what the original intent was um, of our Constitution feels perfectly safe mm-hmm. um, for anyone who was not part of that constitution. Um, So anyone who is Black and pretty much all people of color, people who are Native American, women, right, who did not have the vote under that initial uh, constitution, you know, there are lots of us for whom the framers and the original people who wrote our constitution 
had no interest in us as people, didn't even necessarily believe that we were people and certainly didn't believe um, that we had freedoms or rights that they had to respect. So as we sort of watch what this court is doing as it moves further and further to the right, any kind of right that is unenumerated in the Constitution and that is not rooted in the nation's history and traditions is potentially at risk. And just the last thing that I'll say on this is, you know, there have been lots of folks making these, you know, don't be so hysterical and calm down. And, you know, there there are limits to what the court will do. The next time somebody says that to me, we're actually in person, we're we're probably going to get into a fist fight. (laughs) Um, Because at this point, you just can't continue to make that claim. This is a Mm -hmm. court that is on the fringes. And this is a court that sees very few limits to its power. Wow. Wow. You know, that that's a lot right there. And I know there there are concerns uh, as far as what is coming next. And like you said, they're already talking about all these different cases. I haven't heard about Plessy versus Ferguson. Didn't hear that. But that doesn't mean (laughs) that that can't be taken up either. So, you know, it almost I don't want to say it kills the moral debate, but I think people try to condense this down to kill babies or don't kill babies. Mm -hmm. This is not what it's about, not when it's written the way it is. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and you know, I, even that the, the, the moral debate about um, and, and this is a debate that I, I've reached a point where I really just don't get into this with people anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. Because I believe so deeply um, the, in the importance of abortion rights. But, you know, one thing that I will say is that we are weighing the lives, the health, the choices, the humanity of actual people in the world who are decision makers against an entity that potentially will become um, a person in the world. Um, And that for me is always just going to be problematic, right? Because that's not the way that we treat other people in the world. We don't treat men that way, right? We don't say if you have a kidney that could save somebody's life, you are required to give them your kidney. You know, that's just not the way that we think about other people's bodies. And yet when it comes to women and it comes to pregnancy, this sense of those bodies being public is very strong and very problematic because it leads to these kinds of conclusions, which are, you know, you're, you're a vessel, for this future person and you don't have a right to make decisions about what's going to happen to your body and in your body. Yeah. These waters are are so very murky, Kim. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, I was reading about a doctor who is just saying that he is just flat out scared. Uh, We're talking about, we were talking about ectopic pregnancies. Mm -hmm. There's so many complicated medical issues where which, you know, ending a pregnancy is a decision that's made by your doctor. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's it's all wrapped up in this legal wrangling and doctors are scared. I mean, they don't want to, you know, be in, get in trouble with this as, as well. Yeah, that's right. It's I mean, all, so yeah. two things. One is um, if you're a physician who provides abortion services, um, you have to be worried about criminalization. All right. I mean, so, some of these older bans that are kicking back into effect, you know, have punishments, you know, five years life in wow. prison. Right. And then also you can lose your license to practice medicine. So, you know, they need to be really cautious. Um, And one of the things, you know, as I said before, as I was describing Roe and also Casey as well, was that there was always a requirement for the life or health of the pregnant woman, of the pregnant person. I am going to 
believe, because I have to, that states are going to feel like that requirement is something that they have to maintain, that that you could not have a state statute without an exception for life and health of the pregnant woman um, and have a state court that says, yeah, that's okay. You can let women die, right? You can ban abortion and let and let women die, even if we clearly know that there is a risk to their life or health. Um, so I think they're going to feel bound to keep those to keep the life or health exception, what they are not going to feel bound to do is keep exceptions for rape and incest. And so I think we'll see a lot more statutes where they no longer feel like they are obligated to at least carve out uh, people who are survivors of sexual assault um, or incest uh, who end up pregnant. And that's that's a sad day as well. While we're on this uh, subject, let's look at this at, you know, with this wider lens and talk about the things that are going to be happening in the states with the so-called trigger laws uh, Mm -hmm. and states that have pledged to keep uh, abortion safe and available for women. What what are we going to see here? Chaos, utter chaos. That is exactly what we're seeing right now. So even the day of, right, we had some states that immediately said, you know, if you have people in your clinic, send them home. And and I want to I want folks to really take a moment with that. You've made a decision that you're going to terminate this pregnancy. You've made that decision based on who you are, what your life is like, um, where you want to be, all of those good things. You've made that decision based on the fact that you already have children because the vast majority of folks who have abortions in this country already have children at home. And imagine that you're sitting in that clinic on Friday because you've made that decision. And then somebody walks into your exam room and says, I'm sorry, you have to get dressed and you have to leave. Um, I cannot imagine how wrenching that must have been for people um, on Friday. And then also for folks who had appointments that were coming up, right? Again, in places where there were 24 or 48 hour waiting periods, maybe you had done your consent on Thursday or on Friday and you were ready to go in on Saturday. So you know, we've got the things that have kicked in already. We've got several states already where there are temporary restraining orders in place because the lawyers were ready and people can say what they want to about lawyers, but we were ready to go. And so, you know, the Texas uh, pre-row ban that has been put on hold. Louisiana had a, has a ban that's been temporarily put on hold. Um, and we're going to continue to see that as lawyers get into these, these other states and say there has to be some sort of evaluation of what's going on here. The other thing that we're going to see are lots of folks who just don't know what the rules are, right? Uh, and some of that is going to be because we will have these temporary restraining orders that are saying, okay, we can't enforce this right now, but maybe you can two weeks from now, Um, who knows, but also physicians who are concerned about just how broad are these laws going to be. And I'll give you an example. There was a health system just yesterday um, that announced that it was at least temporarily, and this this was a a faith-based health system, which I often think think is important, and said, we're going to stop giving out plan B because we're not sure that the abortion ban in our uh, state is so narrow that it wouldn't also include plan B. And so that's another piece of how expansive this decision is, because people who oppose abortion often also oppose any form of contraception that they believe has the potential to keep a fertilized egg from implanting, right? Which most of us says, then you're not pregnant, right? (laughs) Because that fertilized egg has not implanted. And that's what medicine uh, tells us. But if you're the state and you get to decide what an abortion looks like, 
that maybe morning after pills are no longer available. Maybe you start telling doctors you can't insert IUDs anymore, right? I mean, the the landscape here is potentially quite bleak. Wow. You know, another thing that I was reading about is um, online privacy. Online privacy mm-hmm. now is a concern. I mean, we're talking about women fearful that they could be prosecuted because, you know, their online activity could be used against them and to prosecute them if they yeah, were seeking that is an abortion. Exactly right. That's that crazy. Is exactly right. So, you know, there were lots of posts going around on social media over the weekend about if you have a period tracker on your right. phone, get rid of it get rid of the data. Um, If you are, you know, Googling for resources about um, abortion, maybe don't do it from your own phone, maybe don't do it from your own um, computer. I mean, things that we shouldn't even have to think about. Um, And yet those are the kinds of things that folks that are on the table now, because the the landscape has become um, so deeply and wildly problematic. Um, And Going back to what I was saying before about how the world is different from where we were, you know, in the 60s and the early 70s in terms of what kind of abortion procedures are available, you know, medication abortion is really a game changer in some ways because you can very safely. And it's true, you know, since time immemorial, women have been finding safe ways to terminate pregnancies. Um, But medication abortion is a way to very safely terminate a pregnancy. up to about 10 weeks or so. And so it used to be this, you know, basic tenant of anti-choice folks that you don't go after the woman, right? You go after the doctor, you go after the industry, they're they're the bad people. The woman's just sort of a victim um, in these circumstances. But with medication abortion, they're going to have to start targeting women. You know, they're going to have to figure out, okay, did somebody order these pills and where do they get where do they get delivered to and who lives in that house or, you know, expanding their their bounty hunter laws and saying, well, if you're in a pharmacy and you see somebody pick up these pills, could you potentially sue and say that this is a person who's having an abortion um, that they shouldn't have? You know, the Texas bounty hunter kind of uh, uh, law. So they're not just your online privacy, but just the way that you move through the world right, potentially is going to be interfered with because of what the Supreme Court did a week ago. Is there any possibility we could see this reinstated? Um, yes, um, but that would be the, the scenario in which that happens is quite far-fetched. Um, it's certainly not going to happen with this Supreme Court and a number of people sitting on this Supreme Court. I'm thinking in particular of Justices Kavanaugh um, and Barrett are quite young and will be there for for many, many years. And the hostility to abortion and the hostility to a lot of other rights um, is really significant among the folks who have the majority in the court right now. So this is not a court that would ever reinstate um, Roe versus Wade or something better than Roe, right? Because Roe wasn't perfect. Mm-hmm. But this court is certainly not going to do that. Congress could act and pass the Women's Health Protection Act, which is meant to codify Roe into federal law. So then it would be protected by an actual statute, by a law passed by Congress, as opposed to decisions made by the Supreme Court. Um, That's not going to happen with this Congress. And it certainly wouldn't happen before uh, the midterms because, you know, the the Democrats, frankly, don't have the stomach for it. 
they're not ready to engage in the kind of fight that folks on the right have been engaging in literally for decades. We are here because this work has been going on for decades to get to this point. Um, So that's unlikely to happen. And so really, it's all about what is happening on the state level. It's about your state constitution. It's about the progressive prosecutors. And we've already heard some of them say, I will not prosecute people either for providing abortions um, or for receiving abortions, which is huge. And, you know, you can say what you want to about whether there's such a thing as a progressive prosecutor, but these are moments where those people really matter. So it's going to be a really bumpy ride. And, you know, we know exactly who bears the brunt of abortion bans. We know it's poor women. We know it's black women who um, have a disproportionate number of abortions um, in this country. We know it's undocumented women. We know um, it's younger women who tend to not find out about their pregnancies um, until later on and sometimes because they're in denial. Um, So women who are incarcerated, right? Imagine that you're pregnant and incarcerated in a state where abortion is banned. You know, what are the chances that you're going to get them to transport you to another state um, in order to get an abortion? So there are going to be thousands upon thousands of women giving birth to children um, who they don't want and who they uh, would have had um, an abortion. And that, that to me, doesn't seem like a victory, um, but obviously to some people it does. Well, well the, the ripple effects are extremely far-reaching. So, Professor, what now? What voice or recourse do Americans have? Do we just take it to the ballot box? Is, is that it? So that's one thing, obviously, right? Um, and that is also, you know, underneath the shadow of this Supreme Court, which is, you know, laughing gleefully at enforcing the Voting Rights Act um, and is watching states strip a whole whole swaths of people of political power, um, even, even at the same time that they are issuing an opinion on abortion rights that says, well, it's okay, women, because you have political power now and you can, you know, you can change this on the state level if you so choose. Um, so voting absolutely matters. Um, you know, one thing that I will say about voting is that it's not just every four years. It's not just during the presidential election. You have to care about everybody who is in a position of power in your jurisdiction. And I want to especially say that to folks who live in states where your judges are elected. So I'm looking at you, Pennsylvania. Um, right. I mean, those those matter. Who sits in these seats Matters. So care about your judges, care very deeply about who who goes to your state legislature, um, care about who sits on your school boards. All of these things really matter. So definitely voting is, is, is key. I also think that people need to be thinking a lot more about their willingness. If you believe deeply in the right to have an abortion, um, you know, think about the things that you can do that are that are practical support for people who are seeking abortions, whether it is, you know, using your car to drive somebody to a clinic or to help somebody who, you know, would have had to drive 15 miles, but now has to do 150. Um, You know, can you help with the, with those folks? Can you be a clinic escort? I'm very concerned about um, violence at the clinics that do remain open in states that continue to protect um, abortion rights, because, you know, we know that there are, people in the abortion rights movement who believe that killing abortion providers is a righteous act. Um, and I think without Roe versus Wade, that that sense of righteousness will be even will be even more um, significant. Um, so, you know, being a clinic escort, um, talking to your legislators 
um, you know, making those phone calls, showing up for demonstrations, right? All of those things, I think, are just absolutely important in this moment. Um, and then also, and this is one that I think is a little tougher, and I and I recognize that, but I think it's worth saying. About a quarter of women will have abortions in their lifetimes. Um, This is not an unusual procedure. And the vast majority of us, whether we know it or not, know and love someone who has had an abortion or who will have an abortion um, in, in their lifetime. So if you are a person who is comfortable doing so, let people in your life know about the fact that you had an abortion and why you had that abortion and why it was meaningful to you and what it would mean to be in a position where you are um, pregnant and cannot have an abortion. You know, as, as somebody who's I've got two beautiful children at home, um, I've been pregnant twice and I cannot imagine going through that experience without my consent. Kimberly Mutcherson, Dean and Professor of Law at Rutgers Law School in Camden. Thank you for joining us on Bridging Philly. Thank you for having me. After the overturning of Roe v. Wade, there have been several questions surrounding the health and safety of women in areas where abortions will no longer be available. Sharaday Howard spoke with several doctors to give us more perspective. This week, our newsmakers are Pennsylvania doctors who aren't holding back because they say the cost is too high. And now in the wake of the United States Supreme Court's recent ruling overturning Roe v. Wade, doctors here in Pennsylvania are sounding off, hoping to bring attention to the urgency of defending access to abortion across the country and right here in our region. Now, I spoke with a few of these very same physicians outside of City Hall to get their professional insight into the potential impact of banning abortion and what that could mean to the women of Pennsylvania. They explained that although abortion is still legal in Pennsylvania, there are efforts in the state legislature to change all that. And these physicians say such a move would have a devastating impact on the lives of women and girls. Why? Because Dr. Kate O'Neill says abortion is a form of health care and criminalizing health care could endanger lives. Here's Dr. Kate O'Neill, fertility specialist. You do not want your doctors who are providing you with medical care thinking, am I going to go to jail for this? Is this against the law? Will I get in trouble with hospital legal? You want them making the best decision for you based on the medical medical facts in front of them. And unfortunately, now we're in a position where we're handicapped. And I find myself now in this situation where the Supreme Court's decision has potentially impacted my ability to do my job, to help my patients and to take care of my patients. And now it's back to the states. And so now it's up to our local government and people to protect us and our patients. I became a doctor because I wanted to save lives. And today, if I was back in Missouri where I did my uh, residency training, I may be taking care of a patient that has an ectopic pregnancy, a pregnancy outside of the uterus that can't go on to develop into a normal pregnancy. And I might have to sit there and talk to the lawyers on the phone to see if I can actually treat her as she is bleeding and potentially may lose her life. And that's not just true in in Missouri. 
I mean, I may find myself in a position in some in some places where my patient is having a miscarriage and it's a it's a very desired pregnancy, but she's bleeding and because of whatever medical can medical facts are going on at the time, I don't know if I can help her. I may just have to sit there and watch her suffer. And Dr. Sarah Gutman, a family planning physician says, Pennsylvania is already experiencing a maternal mortality crisis, one that disproportionately affects black women. Abortion bans will make that worse. I love living in Pennsylvania. I love the community here. But when I think about the fact that my daughter could end up living in a state where she cannot make decisions about her own body because the people who are supposed to represent her have taken that away, that scares me. Pennsylvanians need access to a compassionate, safe medical care. Legislation that puts additional barriers between myself and my patients puts their lives at risk. And Shirley Gardner is a nurse who says banning abortion won't stop abortions. It'll only end women's rights to having safe abortions. Unsafe abortions contributes sustainably to maternal deaths worldwide in a country where safe abortions aren't accessible. Medical studies published last year estimated that a total abortion ban in the U.S. could result in about 21% increase in maternal deaths and about 33% increase in maternal deaths among black women. For black women, to which unsafe abortions is now an important contributor, it is almost three times higher than that of white women. Against the backdrop of COVID-19 pandemic, which has shown a spotlight on healthcare inequities. The United States has uh, wrecked havoc on lower income and black and brown Americans, and this is unacceptable. And Mikhail Ovaletz is a maternal fetal physician, and she says banning abortion in many cases is banning healthcare. The overturning of Roe will have dire consequences for so many individuals across the country. Banning abortion means banning access to abortion and prohibiting abortion training. What so many do not realize is that abortion training and access not only provides women with the choice to do what is best for themselves, abortion training and abortion access prevent women from all kinds of pregnancy complications from dying. Currently in Pennsylvania, access to abortion and abortion training is threatened as our state legislator has and continues to try and prevent women from having reproductive freedom, from having the right to decide what is best for their own bodies and for their futures. And then I met Dr. Ann Steiner. She was eager to talk about technology and the role it plays in family planning. And without it, she said, families would be at a loss. So she pulled me aside to speak one-on-one. -on -one. Hi, my name's Ann Steiner. I'm an obstetrician gynecologist. I have been one for 40 years. I am in the business of helping women to live better lives and for their families to be as healthy and prosperous as they can be, that women should be able to finish their education, they should be able to get better jobs, they should be able to pull their families out of poverty, and it is reproductive technology and family planning that has allowed them to do it. There is no doubt about it. Uh, it has improved our society and the quality of life, and it narrows. And right as Anne was being called away to take a group photo, I met Belinda. Dr. Belinda Berenbaum is a rheumatologist, and when we spoke, she doubled down on the concept that abortion is health care, echoing her colleagues saying that if limitations are put between her and her patients, she won't be able to do her job adequately. 
and that her patients will suffer. So she and her fellow physicians gathered together to speak out in defense of human rights and the defense of the rights of women because they say they refuse to stand idly by while their patients' lives are being put at risk. It's clearly a healthcare issue. The Hippocratic Oath that we took as physicians align with the Ninth Amendment of our Constitution in terms of protecting lives and protecting patients and allowing us the privilege to do so. The ban on abortion is a ban on healthcare and a ban on our ability to practice medicine. I'm standing here as a rheumatologist, not an obstetrician, who treats patients with autoimmune diseases and arthritis every day. I prescribe medications that could have potential side effects to a fetus. I have to discuss this with every woman I see before I can prescribe them a medication. If I can't have this conversation, if I can't do the job that I'm trained to do and give these women the lives that they need to live so that they can live pain-free and function and have pregnancies and be healthy and have healthy babies, then I can't do my job. And that's terrifying to me. And it just is so myopic of the Supreme Court to have made this decision. And so again, this is a healthcare issue. Abortion is healthcare and, and healthcare is on the line. I'm Sharaday Howard, and that's your newsmaker. At Devereaux Advanced Behavioral Health, we exist to change lives by unlocking and nurturing human potential for people living with emotional, behavioral, or cognitive differences. We were founded in 1912 by a special education teacher in South Philadelphia, and since then, we've been treating the most vulnerable members of the population in the same way we would treat our own families. To learn more about our evidence-based, trauma-focused care for children, adolescents, and adults, visit Devereaux.org. The Philly Rising Changemaker of the Week. Presented by Devereaux Advanced Behavioral Health. KYW's Antoinette Lee here with this week's Philly Rising Changemaker. This organization has seen a rising calls for their services since the overturning of Roe v. Wade. They have risen to the occasion to help meet the concerns of LGBTQ plus families. And that is part of the mission of the nonprofit Philadelphia Family Pride, our Philly Rising Changemaker of the Week. Here's more from them on that. I'm Rebecca Levin Nyack, she, her pronouns. Um, My role is I am a board member of Philadelphia Family Pride. I am also an attorney with Junior Law Group in Philadelphia, um, and our firm is known for providing legal services to the LGBT plus community. My name is Michael Galvan. You say them pronouns. Um, I am the Education and Advocacy Chair at um, Philadelphia Family Pride and um, a parent in the Germantown section of Philadelphia. Thank you so much, Michael and Rebecca, for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Okay, so first, let's talk about the organization Philadelphia Family Pride. How long has it been around and what is it known for? Um, It began in 1993, um, and it's known for um, providing a space where LGBTQ-led households can uh, come together for community events, bring their children together, um, and also provides educational events. So if you will just each tell me what encouraged you to get involved with Philadelphia Family Pride? 
However, I um, was encouraged to get involved because I, I connected with Philadelphia Family Pride's um, sort of like uh, foster pathways to foster parenting um, programming in, I think it was like January of 2020, the whole like pandemic era kind of blended together, but it was sometime in either 2019 or 2020. The ability to have that networking connection there was um, really helpful um, to see other LGBTQ plus individuals and families um, was really um, just very impactful um, to somebody who had always dreamed of having my own family like that. Um, my firm has always sort of provided educational services regarding um, legal rights. And so I've been practicing law at my current law firm for almost 12 years. And so I was always had sort of my would come to the annual conferences that PFP had and um, led some legal know your rights seminars at those conferences. And then was when I had my own children, was happy to be a part of the organization. And actually met my wife through the organization. So let's dig in a little bit and talk about what were first your personal reactions following the overturning of Roe v. Wade and why. Disbelief that that really, you know, happened and could happen, you know, that rights that we had for 50 years were suddenly gone, evaporated. And then when I read the full opinion, um, it made me feel even more vulnerable personally as a you know, married queer parent um, that, you know, rights much more recent, that much more recently achieved than Roe could be taken away just as easily. I was scrolling on my Twitter feed and the first thing I saw was actually um, Justice Thomas's concurring opinion. I just immediately felt angry um, for all people who are able to give birth and their ability to have personal autonomy over their own decision to, to decide what they want to do with their body, whether that is, you know, carrying a, a birth to term or not. You know, as leaders of an organization dedicated to serving LGBTQ plus families, uh, what concerns are you hearing from uh, the communities? Our personal concerns are shared by much of the LGBT community. And so in my law firm, um, I handle all of our adoption cases. A lot of them are confirmatory adoptions. You know, I've always done that type of adoption because there are many reasons um, that people should confirm their parental rights if they're a non-biological parent, even prior to this decision. So I've always done this work, but I think for people there instantly became this sense of urgency to make sure that they are as fully protected as possible. Um, And so we just started getting calls, I would say, in every single day since the decision has come down. We probably have gotten as many calls as we have gotten in um, a normal month. Um, the the volume is sort of astonishing um, how urgently people are wanting to make sure that should that their rights are as fully protected as possible. Well, first and foremost is just the ability to have again, like I said, bodily autonomy and the ability to choose what you what an individual does with their own body. Um, second, I think family planning, um, becomes much more complicated for LGBTQ plus families in this sense. Um, you know, I, I spoke with Philadelphia Gay News, um, a little while ago. And, and one of the things that I told them and have heard consistently is that the 
medical and adoption process is still not established well enough to support LGBTQ plus families in, in general. Um, and so to have a court decision that overturns a right to privacy um, only further complicates that situation. Um, and then as Rebecca was saying, you know, with the work that she is leading, we are seeing an increased number of um, LGBTQ plus queer families needing to think about things like estate planning and and um, parental rights and adoption rights and ensuring things like that are secure in the long run because this court has indicated that not only are they in- interested in overturning Roe v. Wade, but there's contraception, the right to adopt, right to marriage, all of these other issues that they are potentially interested in looking at um, as, as a kind of catch-all for the right to privacy issue. Philadelphia Family Pride, um, how are you all navigating this as an organization to help offer families support and to help offer them services? How are you all addressing this? I think within an hour or two of the opinion coming down, and I started noticing just all of the calls by firm was getting. So I um, called the executive director of our organization and said, we need to you know, provide an educational event to address the concerns that we're hearing from our community. And so, you know, within within an hour or two, we had a date and time and Facebook invitation for that event and will certainly continue to, you know, bring our community together through educational events and organizing. Really, we needed to be able to answer as many questions from people at, you know, as quickly as possible. And so having um, a community event where people can all come and hear each other's questions and get those questions answered was something um, that we needed to do to make sure that, you know, we're answering questions quickly and have a space to come together. I would say that I think that the biggest piece of support I can provide families from my role right now is just connecting individuals to the support services that exist um, and, and really continuing to message the fact that Philadelphia Family Pride has has been working in this space for a while and will continue to work in this space um, to ensure that there are adequate pathways and avenues of resources for prospective parents, LGBTQ plus parents and individuals who are looking to support, have services support them and their families and their community. Yeah, and let's briefly, while we're on that, um, let's talk about what kind of services uh, Philadelphia Family Pride offers um, that people can seek out from you. The first one that I would say is actually the one that got me engaged with Philadelphia Family Pride in the first place. It's that past the parenthood class um, that I think is going to be so critical and important for our community going forward um, to really ensure that there is a robust understanding of the different opportunities that LGBTQ plus individuals have um, to ensure that they are successful in their pathway to parenthood or whatever path that they might choose to, to start their own family if they choose to do that. Um, so the other piece to it, too, is just continuing to, you know, create community and a sense of belonging in a community that can at times feel ostracized from the general populace um, and really work to ensure that education and advocacy is, is a key tenant of the work that we do going forward. Yeah, we're, we try to keep being a fun organization for you know, our, our members and our children. And so we you know, do a lot of events like potlucks, pool parties, camping trips, um, but then also have you know, the educational events as well. Um, we have a conference every October. Um, and so we'll have that again this year. Um, and then we have classes like the Pathways to Parenthood class. We have online meetups uh, for different um 
even more specific groups, transparent um, dads, um, different single parents. And so we um, provide a space for people to come together. And so um, what are some steps that families who might have concerns and anxiety, what are some, some steps they can take in these following weeks? Well, legally, those steps are steps that we recommended prior to Dobbs. In Pennsylvania, there is no statute that says who is a parent, but we know you can be a parent by biology, adoption. The the marital presumption is sort of not all that reliable in Pennsylvania. It's been established through case law, not by statute. And it only holds, um, the current case law says it only holds while a marriage is intact. There are circumstances where it could be rebutted. And so if there was a separation or even if someone died, that presumption uh, may not be applied. Um, whereas an adoption, you know, is a permanent court order that needs to be um, recognized everywhere. And many people are surprised, even for married couples, when where a parent gives birth and the other parent is on the birth certificate, that birth certificate is generally looked at as evidence of what's reported at the time of birth. It can be changed or amended and does not need to be recognized in, by any other state. And so adoption confirmatory, I like to call it confirmatory adoptions, are the way that we've always made parental rights be secure. But I think at this moment, um, you know, having that security to your children um, is more important than ever. So doing um, confirmatory adoptions is one thing I would recommend. And then we're also seeing at my firm, a lot of people, you know, not wanting to rely on their marriage to um, provide other protections, like um, who's going to make a decision for you if you were in the hospital, that they're wanting to do powers of attorney, where of course you can name your spouse, but you could also name you know, who you want to be the decider if that person's not available. So these documents are always good to have, but they are something that we're seeing you know, demand for right now to make sure that there is that extra protection that your wishes will be respected whether or not um, your marriage is respected. Uh, How can people get in contact with both you, Rebecca, and the organization Philadelphia uh, Family Pride if they have further questions or want to get involved? By going online to the website, just Google Philadelphia Family Pride, you'll find the website, you can become a member. Also, um, you'll see events there, also through the Facebook page. And then for... Me, because I sort of have a professional hat in this world as well as an attorney, uh, my law firm is called the Jerner Law Group. Um, our website is Jerner, J-E-R-N-E-R, law.com. So um, that's a good way to reach me. And if you're someone listening who you know needs um, resources for estate planning or adoption, I can connect you to those. And for people who have friends or family in other states who might need similar services, um, we can connect you with those resources as well. Um, Being an active member with Philadelphia Family Pride is a really great way to create community. Um, there is always power in numbers. Um, and this is an organization that wants to welcome families of all kinds into their, into their arms. Um, and so, you know, I think if you're, uh, you know, a queer LGBTQ plus family by any, many, any means, um, there's, there's, a, there will always be a place for you at Philadelphia Family Pride. Um, 
if you need to contact me for any reason, um, I think uh, both email and Twitter are best um, for me. Um, my handle on Twitter is at Michael in PHL. Um, so um, you can direct message me on Twitter or whatever you need, or my email address um, is mgalvan, G-A-L-V, like in Victor, A-N-0149 at gmail.com. That's it for this week's Philly Rising Changemaker of the Week. If you know someone making a difference in your community, please reach out to me. I would love to highlight the next changemaker from your neighborhood. You can go to kywnewsradio.com slash Philly Rising. That's kywnewsradio.com slash Philly Rising. Or as always, you can find me on Twitter at ARLeonAir. Thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us on Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter at Bridging Philly and with me at Raquel on Air. And of course, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. For Antoinette Lee, Shower Day Howard, and our producer, Arian Fulcher, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well. <laughs>